Good morning, Great Parks. So sorry uh, I'm not here in person today. Um, you've probably heard by now that my wife, Carol, was positively tested for COVID this week. And um, although I've tested negative, I just felt it was safer and wiser not to travel down to Paynton today. So very sorry not to be with you. Um, I've recorded this uh, talk, uh, especially for you today and hope that you'll find it uh, both a challenge, uh, but also a very real blessing and encouragement. Uh, I've noticed that when you're watching talks on video, your eyes tend to wander and have a look around and see what's behind the person speaking. Well, this is my office, my study. This is where I do most of my work. So most of what you can see uh, is my library, but you'll also see this little glass probably from time to time. I just need you to know that this is not what it looks like. It's actually apple juice and not some other substance. Okay, I'm going to read to you, um, first of all, from Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12. And then we've got uh, another reading in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians and a third reading in 2 Corinthians. But they're all very short. Here's the first, Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Jesus is speaking and he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jumping over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where I'll read just verses 11 to 13. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We work hard with our own hands. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, says Paul the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Then over into 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where I'll read just verses 8 to 10. Paul again says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. May God bless the reading of his word to us today. Well, some months ago, I remember visiting one of our older members and uh, she's a lady who's lived a very eventful life and still has a very lively faith, but who has to deal daily with a number of health issues as well as a less than reliable memory. I don't know why the Lord doesn't take me, she said to me within minutes of my arrival. I tell him I'll jump if you'll catch me, but he never does. So I'm still here. Friends, she's waiting for the best. She's waiting for the best, the best thing that can ever happen to a child of God to either go home or for Jesus to come. I have to say, the longer I live and the more I see of this world's sin and sadness, the more I long for that great day. And maybe you do too. The day on which we shall enter our heavenly rest. The moment in which we should all be changed. The instant at which we'll finally see the Lord. Now don't get me wrong, 
I'm not saying that life on this earth is not worth living. Most of us live very happy lives compared to most of the world's people. We have comfortable lives, contented lives, living in secure homes, having plenty to eat and to wear. And we can even enjoy days and weeks of leisure and rest. But as children of the heavenly king, we're still waiting for the best, aren't we? Knowing that this world has nothing to offer in comparison with the world that is to come. You with me so far? In the meantime, however, it's my growing conviction that we need to be preparing for the worst. The worst, that is, that the enemy can throw at us whilst we're still living here on this earth. Preparing for the worst in the shape of possibly the worst opposition that the British Church has had to contend with for centuries. The worst kind of ridicule for owning the name of Christ. The worst restrictions to our long-held freedoms of speech and conscience. The worst ramifications for daring to resist the persistent advance of anti-Christian legislation. In other words, the worst actual persecution of believers that you and I will have ever had to face. I'll give you one small example taken from the Christian Concern website a little while ago. It was posted by Andrea Williams, the founder of Christian Concern. And I quote, you may have heard of this case. She said, I've been in court with Dr. David Makarath this week. Dr. Makarath now famously said that he would not call a six foot tall bearded man, madam. And for this, he was promptly dismissed by the Department of Work and Pensions. Their position was that Dr. Makarath should refer to his patients by their chosen pronoun. Dr. Makarath says that this would go against his conscience, since as a committed Christian, he's committed to telling the truth. He explained, I believe gender is defined by biology and genetics, and that as a Christian, the Bible teaches us that God made humans male or female. It's very disturbing to see a doctor with 26 years of experience in A&E medicine being forced to choose between telling the truth and his profession, said Williams. In dismissing Dr. Makarath, the DWP has managed to violate freedoms of conscience, freedom of speech and freedom of religion all in one go. We rely on doctors telling the truth, don't we? Imagine if they were forced to accept a patient's chosen diagnosis. And it's cases like this that has led me to address this issue a number of times in recent months. I make no claim to be a prophet, but to us, to me, the obvious signs are there for all of us to see. Our nation has lost its moral moorings and has largely disowned it's God. So we need to ready ourselves for the consequences of its increasing godlessness. So this morning, very sketchily, I want to share some thoughts with you about how we might best prepare ourselves for the worst of what may come. And I'll gather those thoughts together under two major headings. The first of which is the longest, but it's very important. And it's the things that we need to understand. Things that we, as God's people, need to understand. Here are some basic facts which we need to grasp. I want to highlight just, just four of them. And the first is that the Bible 
warns us to expect persecution. The Bible warns us to expect persecution. Adrian Rogers was a greatly respected pastor and broadcaster and author. And in an article entitled Preparing for Persecution, he said this, there's no way to be a genuine Christian and escape persecution. No way. How come? Well, hear Jesus' words from John 15, 20. Remember what I told you? A servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you as well. Or Paul's words in First Thessalonians uh, chapter 3, verse 4, where he says, In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. And then even more explicitly, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul says this, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Make no mistake about it, friends, both through the master and through his most influential of servants, the Bible warns us to expect persecution, to simply assume it's going to happen. The late Billy Graham said, we have no scriptural foundation for believing that we can forever escape being persecuted for Christ's sake. The normal condition for Christians, he says, is that we should suffer persecution. Notice that, the normal condition. Well, here's the second thing we need to grasp. We will be persecuted because of Jesus. We will be persecuted because of Jesus, because of what he stood for, his truth and his integrity, justice and mercy, compassion and generosity, love and humility. Jesus stood for all of those things. And some of those things are not too popular these days. Persecuted for Jesus' sake because of how he calls us to live with him at the helm of our lives in full control, with him at the heart of our lives, the object of our devotion and our worship. And also because of our insistence that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life and that no one, not anyone, can come to the Father except through him. They will seize you and persecute you, he said in Luke 21. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison and you'll be brought before kings and governors. Here it is. And all on account of my name. And again in Mark 13, 13, everyone will hate you because of me. We'll be persecuted, friends, because of Jesus. That's the second thing we really need to grasp. Here's the third. The opposition will take various forms. The opposition will take various forms. Forms. The word persecution comes directly from a Latin noun, uh, an action noun, which means to follow or pursue or hunt down. The English word is defined by my dictionary as hostility and ill treatment, especially because of race or political or religious beliefs. So to be persecuted is to be hounded and harried, to be victimised and terrorised, to be baited and bullied on account of what colour you are or of what you believe. That's essentially what happened to Tim Farron back in 2017, eventually causing him to resign as leader of the Liberal Democrats. 
He was forced, you see, by many in the media to answer questions on the morality of gay sex and abortion. And in his resignation statement, Tim Farron said that to be leader of the Liberal Democrats and to live as a committed Christian felt impossible to him. And he added that we're kidding ourselves if we think that we yet live in a tolerant society. And the media have done much the same with other Christian politicians uh, more recently. Also happened what also what happened to a former magistrate by the name of Richard Page. Back in 2014, during a closed door consultation with two other magistrates about an adoption case, Richard simply expressed his view that wherever possible, children do best with a mum and a dad. And despite having served as a magistrate in Kent for 15 years with an exemplary record, Richard was reported for his comments. And following an investigation was disciplined by the Lord Chancellor and Lord Chief Justice, no less. And he was told that his views about family life were discriminatory against same-sex couples. And he was barred from sitting as a magistrate until he had received a quality training. Now, at the time, Richard, who had nearly 20 years experience as a finance director in the NHS, was serving a four-year term as a non-executive director of Kent and Medway NHS. And just weeks after the decision to remove him from the magistracy, Richard was also suspended from his role at the Trust. And when his term as a non-executive director came up for renewal in June 2016, Richard expressed an interest to continue in that same role. But in August 2016, he was blocked from his position. He was told that a panel had convened to consider his suitability and had unanimously decided that it was not in the interests of the health service for him to serve any longer as a non-executive director in the NHS. He was also told that the panel's view would have to be taken into account if he applied for a similar role in the NHS in the future. The panel had received just one complaint about Richard's views, but was made aware of more than six thousand emails supporting him and protesting at his suspension. Andrea Williams commented at the time the decision to block Richard from returning to his role is an attack on the man and his views and has nothing to do with the practical workings of the NHS. The freedom for Christians to hold and express their views, she said, is under threat. Well, friends, just a month or so ago, Richard died uh, of Alzheimer's, having already lost his wife just a year earlier. And in her tribute to him on the Christian Concern website, Andrew Williams said, with the permission of Richard's family, we hope to take his case to the Supreme Court because he always knew it was not just about justice for him, but about contending for Christian truth in public life. So that's one form of persecution being got at, being pursued, being picked on for standing by your moral convictions to the point of losing your job and almost losing your business, as has happened in other cases. There again, the opposition may be directed at the church as a whole. Uh, a couple of years or so ago, according to an article uh, on the Barnabas Web uh, Fund website, handwritten letters 
threatening petrol bomb attacks and mass stabbings had been sent to 15 churches in the UK within a two-month period. Stop all your services straight away, said one letter sent to a church in Sheffield. If you don't, your church will be petrol bombed while the service is happening. Continue behind closed doors and your congregation members will be stabbed one by one. Blood on your hands. You have been warned. This is the UK we're talking about. This isn't Pakistan or Iran. This is Britain. So have we known opposition here in Martok? Well, we certainly have particularly in relation to our purchase of the George some years ago, not least in the spreading of half-truths and lies, as well as in terms of ridicule and spite. Happily, a good deal of that opposition has given way to commendation as we've refurbished the building, restored it uh, to its previous um, better state. Happily, people now, some of them anyway, uh, have turned and more or less said well done. Uh, for the way that you've looked after the building. But we all know where it ultimately springs from, don't we? Our enemy is subtle and creative. The enemy has a, a long memory and a long reach. And he attacks both individuals and institutions, using demons as well as people, inflicting various levels of harm, from ridicule to fear, from embarrassment to imprisonment, from pain even as far as death. As Adrian Rogers put it, you'll be hounded in many ways. You'll become the butt of jokes. You may find you'll be ostracised socially, passed over for promotion, looked down upon as socially inappropriate. So, things that we need to understand. Number one, we're to expect persecution. Number two, it'll happen because of Jesus. Number three, it'll take various forms. But having said that, friends, number four, we need to understand this. We do not need to be afraid. We do not need to be afraid. I won't take long on this because time is rushing on, but there's a line in one of the worship songs that we sing here in Martok, which says this, our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Amen. He really is. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Asked Paul. Then he answered his own question. Shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who left us. Romans 8, 35 and 37. In his second letter to the church in Corinth, Paul said this, That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Friends, those were not just pious words. For Paul had proved the truth of them comprehensively. Just as Stephen did, and Peter did, and Justin Martyr did, and John Wycliffe did, and more recently, the likes of Richard Vermbrand and Joseph Ton and Brother Yun and so on and so forth. For our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Speaking of Brother Yun. This is what he said of a four-year spell in prison on account of his faith. He says, I'd suffered some horrible tortures, but God had been faithful. I'd been dragged in front of judges and courts, but God had been faithful. 
had been hungry, thirsty, fainted from exhaustion, but God had been faithful. He never left me, nor has he forsaken me. His grace was always sufficient and he provided for my every need. And you know what? His grace will be sufficient for you and for me. Whatever the trial we're called to endure for his namesake. He will not give us grace for tomorrow, today. But he will provide grace for the hour, for the day. When grace is needed, his grace will be given. So friends, that was part one. <laughs> Four things we need to understand. Now to part two, which will be a good deal shorter. It's only got two little sub points instead of four. Uh, the second of those has got a few sub sub points, but we won't go into that. Here's the second thing, things that we need to do. We've looked at things we need to understand. Here are things that we need to do in light of what we've understood uh, and aware that growing opposition is more or less a certainty. How should we respond? Well, first of all, we should resist and not resign. And by that, I mean that we should object to the tide of moral compromise and ungodliness. Not, not simply give in to it, acquiesce to it. We should challenge it rather than meekly accept it as inevitable. Now, the downside of that, of course, is that such a reaction is likely to stir up even more persecution. But surely scripture leaves us no real option. Paul said to the Ephesians, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. In other words, bring the evil into the light. James said to his readers, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And John adds that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work, not give in to it. So how can his followers suggest even for a moment that there's nothing we can do, that we might as well do nothing and enjoy a little peace? A man called Andrew Sandlin, a professor and founder of the Centre for Cultural Leadership, said this, salvation necessitates confrontation and confrontation requires resistance. So, strong in the strength which God supplies. Let's, let's prepare ourselves for battle because opposing sin in, in all its nefarious forms, whether through prayer or email or by signing your name on a, a petition or carrying a placard in the streets or whatever, it's tough. It's a battle, but let's be resistors, not resigners. That's the first thing we need to do. Now for the second, and this could easily be another talk or two, but, but the other thing we need to do, and it's very, very simple, carry on living the normal Christian life. That's it. And I'm sorry if you were hoping for something really deep and profound and new because I don't think there is anything. Carry on living the normal Christian life. In an article I referred to a little bit earlier, Billy Graham asked a question, what would you do should persecution come? And the answers he gives add up to this one thing carry on living the normal Christian life. On a website called Radical Christian Woman, mother and blogger Kendra Rice uh, suggests six ways to prepare for persecution. And again, they all add up to the very same thing. Carry on living the normal Christian life. Now, what does that mean? 
How do we live the normal Christian life? Well, I've narrowed it down to just seven different disciplines. And I make no apology for the word discipline because the New Testament uses it first. Indeed, Jesus used it first. We are disciples, aren't we? Therefore, we need to have discipline. Here are those seven things, like frames from a high-speed camera, very, very quickly. First, we need to keep our focus on God. Not just on a Sunday, but throughout the rest of the week. Week in and week out. Year in and year out. We need to keep our focus on God. Secondly, we need to read the word of God. Not just an occasional verse or two from a calendar, but whole chapters on a regular basis. Read the word of God. Number three, we we need to remember the promises of God. And not just for the sake of our comfort, but also for the sake of our courage. Remember the promises of God. Number four, we need to meet with the people of God. Not not just with dozens in a church building like this, but also maybe with a handful in our homes. Meet with the people of God that we might encourage one another. Fifthly, we need to be fervent in prayer to God. Not, not just when the mood takes us, but also when it doesn't take us. We need to keep praying, friends, for our country, for our community, for our church. Sixthly, we need to wear the armour of God, not just the belt and the breastplate, but also the helmet and the sword. We need to wear and use the armour of God. And lastly, we need to be filled, filled continuously with the Spirit of God. So not just once, but over and over allowing the Spirit of God to fill us. That's the normal Christian life. At least it should be. That's what it ought to look like. Do those things intentionally, regularly, and you'll be ready when things get tough. You just will. So let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Let's get to know the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make us wise for salvation. Let's remember the many promises that are all yes in Christ. Let's not neglect to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day getting near. Let's be alert and of sober mind that we may pray. Let's put on the full armour of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. And let's be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit so that should we be arrested and brought to trial, it will not be us who are speaking but the Holy Spirit through us. That's the normal Christian life, dear friends. And by living it day by day, we shall be pretty well prepared for the worst the devil can throw at us. I want to finish with a couple of quotations. The first comes from Brother Yun, and it has to do with the Lord's miraculous provision for his persecuted saints. Having endured several days of of beatings and tortures, Brother Yun said this, In those days I was just like a baby, sleeping in the arms of its mother. God purified my heart. I held no hatred or malice against those who had treated me so cruelly. My spirit was full of joy and thanksgiving as I magnified the Lord. Remarkable. In fact, positively superhuman, beyond natural. The police had tried to beat him into the ground, but the Lord had lifted him up. The authorities tried to silence him, but the Lord helped him to sing. That's the Lord's miraculous provision 
for his persecuted saints. He will not fail us, friends. Finally, the words of Justin Martyr, who was beheaded for the faith in AD 165. He said this, the more we are persecuted, the more do others in ever-increasing numbers embrace the faith and become worshippers of God through the name of Jesus. Well, hallelujah. In other words, the more the enemy tries to destroy the church, the more God builds it. And God works together for good. All things for those who love him. Waiting for the best. Preparing for the worst. Which will come first? Who knows? Maybe we'll soon be taken home. But maybe we shall have to endure much worse things than we have before. Only God knows. But we do know this, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell, can separate us from God's love that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I'll say it one more time. Hallelujah. For whatever happens, friends, we finally get to win. Amen.